you, Terry. It's uh, appropriate timing as we've lost a couple from our midst and, and ones we know had a relationship with Jesus. And, and as Jesus said, he would go and prepare a place for us in his father's house. And uh, it'll be like going home in a way that we've never experienced in our, in our lives here. So what a, what a great encouragement. And of course, the, the best thing about heaven is Jesus, yeah. Jesus is the one we're going to get to see, right? And uh, so I think we're going to do what that song talked about, take a look in his book you left behind, right? In fact, we get to, we have the privilege this morning of continuing to look at some of Jesus' own words. So uh, turn with me to John chapter 5 again, as we're, we're in this section where, <clears throat> remember, Jesus has healed a man who's been 38 years uh, without strength, 38 years of probably being an invalid. It's not really specific in the scripture what his, what his problem was, but we know he couldn't get up. He couldn't uh, get into the water uh, when it moved at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, after 38 years requiring recreation of muscles and, and giving him uh, muscle memory and abilities and, and all those things that go with being able to walk and function and everybody praises him, right? Well, right, the, the Jewish leaders, you know, get after this man. What are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath day? And when they find out who did it, they're, they're after Jesus then. They're angry with Jesus because he's told this man to carry his bed or his, 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 his uh, mat on the Sabbath day. Although Jesus wasn't telling him to sin uh, because it didn't violate the spirit of what the Sabbath was all about. In fact, you might say that uh, that was the most restful thing that man had ever done, right? To be able to carry his bed that day and be able to get up and move of his own, on his own power. And, and it leads, led into this section of teaching where Jesus is explaining who he is. And remember, he talked about uh, how he was just doing working because his father was working. And that, of course, took him further. They, were, they wanted to kill him because he was saying that he was equal with God because he said God was his own particular father. Not just father in general, but in fact, he is his father in a unique way, saying he is the son of God. So Jesus has been letting, letting them know that, you know what, they got it right. He could have said, no, wait a minute, that's not what I was talking about, right? He could have said, oh, you misunderstood me. No, he went on, and in, in the section at the beginning here, he, he gave them all the more reason to understand he meant that, yes, in fact, he is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. And so he's been talking about his relationship, especially with his father, how his father has life within himself. And he says, and the Father has given me to have life within myself. The Father is the judge of the world. And he says, the Father has given all judgment into my hands. These are things that only God can do. Right? And yet these men that he's talking to, what's their desire? They want him to be put to death. The crime, they would say, is blasphemy. Because he says he is equal with God. And you look at those verses in, in this chapter, verse 22, 
where he says, For not even the Father judges, judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Or verse 27, speaking of the Father, he says, And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here we have the ultimate judge of all the universe is speaking to them. And they, in essence, are putting him on trial in their hearts and minds. Right? They're not even going through proper procedure, it doesn't seem. They just want him killed. But they want to be the prosecutor. They want to be the judge. And they even want to be the executioner, I'm sure, if they could. They would pick up stones and stone him right there. And yet here we have God in human flesh, the one who is the judge, God the Son, is willing to talk to them about it. That's kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? And so he allows them to turn it around, though he has been given judgment over everything. He is going to, you could say, as, as a human being, he will submit himself to their idea of, of judgment, of a court, and, and he's, he's been defending himself. He's been speaking about, here is who I truly am. Here is why your judgment is incorrect. Here is why I am not guilty of blasphemy. And now he's in essence going to say, now let me call a few witnesses who will speak in my defense, who will tell you who I truly am. It's interesting here. He's, he's talked about how he works in perfect harmony with the creator of all the universe, and in fact is the creator of all the universe, does he have anything to fear from these men? <laughs> you know, as he, as he later you know, tells his disciples in the garden, if, you know, if, if I wanted to, I could call my, my father. He'd, he'd send me thousands of angels. No one can touch me without my father's permission. And yet he condescends probably the theological word, right? He brings himself down to their level and speaks to them. Why? Well, chapter 3, verse 16, right? God so loved the world. Jesus loves these men who want to kill him. So he's willing to speak to them for their benefit and for the benefit of those who are listening. And so follow along with me now as I read verses 31 of John 5 down through verse 40. He says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true or, or valid. Therefore, or, or there is another who testifies about me or of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For both the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. 
for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So in verse 31, he, he brings up an issue that they're probably thinking about, being so focused on the law, uh, the issue that, that a person can't be convicted on the testimony of just one witness. Now, Jesus has given a very strong defense in all of these words that we've already looked at. And because of who Jesus truly is, his testimony about himself is absolutely true and should be sufficient for anyone. And so when he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true, but you're, you're, some translations, I think, translate that valid. But that's the idea, is the testimony of a single witness under the law was not enough to get someone convicted and executed under the law, which we'll look at that verse in just a minute. But his argument so far has been flawless. It has been convincing, but he is willing to accommodate these Jewish leaders. Submit to the authority, the authority that's been entrusted to them, even though they aren't being very good stewards of that authority. And will even go further for their sake and for the sake of those listening. Well, let's look at what the Old Testament says. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. So we can see that uh, Jesus, in fact, is very concerned. I mean, he, he is the author of Scripture, really, ultimately, right? By means of the Holy Spirit. So he says, well, let's, let's go by the rules you were given. And there it says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so Jesus is going to accommodate them. He's going to turn it around. He says, okay, here's my defense against your charges against me that, that you think I should be stoned for. I won't just testify for myself. In fact, I have four witnesses to bring before you that will speak about where I have come from and who I am. He will show them that it's not just him that says he is equal with God, but four key witnesses. And he begins actually with an overview, you could say, in verse 32 of who is the key witness for him. Uh, because there he says, there is another witness who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And though Jesus doesn't name this witness, he's been speaking all along through this section about his complete unity with the Father the whole time. And what, I think really what he's saying there in verse 32 is, is there's one witness that matters. And I'm going to name four, but really God the Father is the one who is witnessing for me. He's doing it by means of, he's, he's one of those four, and he's going to he witnesses for me through the other three. And so he is completely behind each one of these other witnesses and every bit of testimony they give. And even a present tense verb is used that he keeps on, he is continually testifying about who Jesus is. And you get that, the idea that this is his purpose because all through this section, did you notice how often it says testimony and testify, and testimony, and testify, and testimony. So just one of those things when you're reading your Bible, watch for repeated words. They're really important. God's saying, hey, pay attention. That's what this section's about. Who is Jesus? 
there is valid, strong testimony as to his identity. And so his first witness he calls to the stand, you could say, is in verse, starts in verse 33, John the Baptist. And there he says, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And, and a lot of the things that Jesus says, John's prepared us for them already in the chapters we've already seen. So just back up to chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He's told us who John the Baptist was. And it's exactly along these lines. It says, there came a man sent from God. So the source of John the Baptist was God sent him on a mission, right? Whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That's why John the Baptist came. Point people's in the right direction. Say, hey, look, the light is coming. I'm just here to get your eyes in the right direction. The one who's coming, he really is the truth. I, I'm something of a dim reflection of his glory, of his truth. But he wanted, John the Baptist's whole purpose was, look at the one who's coming. Matter of fact, he says, you sent to John the Baptist. And that, we have already seen that as well in chapter 1 of of John, verses 19 through 34. And we've covered this, but let's just go back and revisit that just to see how in-depth John's testimony got. So John chapter 1, verses 19 through verse 34 says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, and he said to them, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but one among you but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So he says, somebody's coming. And I'm not, I, I don't qualify to do the lowliest of jobs, the kind of job that, that a disciple is prohibited from doing for his master. I, I'm, I don't even raise up to that. That's how great this person is. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw, John, or saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Oh, they should have been expecting a savior, right? Someone who could deal with their sins, someone who could pay the price like the lamb did that was sacrificed. Verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. So in other words, I am nothing. Look way up when it comes to his importance at who is coming. He's pointing toward Jesus. And he says, for he existed 
before me. In other words, he's pointing to Jesus always being. Because as a, as, as a human being, John was born before Jesus. But Jesus had already been in existence before that, remember? And he said, I did not recognize him, but so he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. He remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Who can send the Holy Spirit? But God himself, right? I myself have seen and have testified here. It sums it all up. Who is this one who's coming? This is the Son of God. So Jesus says, look at, look at what John said. You went and asked John because you recognized there was something about John. The people believed John the Baptist was a prophet. Did you listen to what the prophet sent from God said? Jesus just points them back to what they've already heard. What did they do with that truth that they were given? Did they believe it? But look at verse back in, in chapter 5. Again, look at the heart of Jesus, verse 34, where Jesus says, But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things. Why? Why is Jesus talking to them? So that you, you men, might be saved. He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to carry on this this debate, this argument, this discussion with them. But his hope was that they would hear these truths about him and choose to put their faith in him so that they could be saved from their sin and from its consequences. He's giving, he's coming down to their level, not to get back at them, not to make them look foolish, not to prove them wrong, not to win the win, right? How often do we get in a debate with people just because I, I want to win, right? Jesus said, winning's not a problem. He can win every debate every time. His heart was, I want you to believe so that you can be saved. He's giving these stubborn and blind leaders an opportunity to get out of the terrible place they are in because of their sin. He goes on to talk about John the Baptist and how, you know, they, they saw John the Baptist at first and they were impressed. The way that he spoke, his boldness, the things he said. And for a time, he says, they were, they, they were excited. As he put it, they were willing for a little time to rejoice in his light, or literally to be made glad because it's a passive verb. So they were going to let this light that was shining from John the Baptist, they were willing to let that make them glad. And that was talking about someone who is called here a lamp. So what you have just is, is that little portable lamp that they're talking about, full of oil, you had a little wick coming out the end, just enough to cast just a little circle of light around, right? It says, for a while, you were willing to be made glad because John was here, because he was shining the light, because he gave you a little bit more insight. But he said it was only for a while, right? Why? Well, it's probably for the reasons that were given in John chapter 3 why people hate the true light. Because right, John was just a lamp, right? Jesus is light itself. If you go back to 3, 19 uh, through 21, you might remember 
what it was said there about people who, why people hate the light. It says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. John was an accurate witness. And that made these, these leaders feel guilty. They knew they were sinners. It exposed them for what they truly were. I mean, remember so the way John spoke. Repent, you brood of vipers. Right? He didn't hold anything back. He showed the light. He said, hey, you look good on the outside. On the inside, you're corrupt. Repent of that and come so that you can be saved. Which gives us pause, though, right? We can't just say, oh, yeah, those terrible Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. But am I willing to get close enough to Jesus that the things that I learn about him that expose me, I'm willing to embrace and say, you're right, I need to turn away from the way I sin against who God is. I sin against his word. Am I willing to be exposed? If we love the light and we move toward the light, then we have to be willing to have our sin exposed. But that's good, right? It's the only way you get rid of it. If you don't know it's there, if you're not aware of it, if it's not seen for what it is, we won't get rid of those things. Then witness number two, back to chapter five, Jesus calls to the witness stand. Verse 36 says, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which my Father has given me to accomplish. The very works I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Remember, this whole conversation started because he miraculously healed this man. It should have been for them light shining on their eyes. Testimony that proved Jesus is from God, that, that God is the only one who can do that to a man. Only God can give life like he gave life to that man. This should have inspired belief rather than a desire to kill Jesus. He said, here's, here's testimony. The things I'm doing that no one can do except God. Interestingly, you think of John the Baptist. And there was a point where he was you know, starting to say, well, is, is Jesus really the one? Interesting, he was, he was giving witness. He was testifying, right? But he wanted, some, he wanted to know for sure. So turn with me back to Matthew 11 and see what encouraged him. Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 6. It says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. He's 
to John the Baptist because he had faith. That was an encouragement for him as he was at that point in prison for what he had done, how he had rebuked Herod. Jesus said, look at the witness. Yes, you're a witness, but my works are another witness. Here are things that are happening. And the things that are happening really are, are just a reflection or an echo, you could say, of what the Old Testament scriptures said. Um, if you turn back to Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, we have a passage that's pointing ahead and saying, here's the glorious future that God has for Israel. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And in that, that description of their glorious future, it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. That's the dry country. It says, the things I'm doing, they make you think of the end result, right? They make you think of what God is going to do for the whole nation. John, you're right. I am the coming one. Take heart. Keep on being faithful even in prison. And you also need to remember the end of the book. I mean, we keep going to the beginning of the book and the end of this book of John. And you remember at the end when he tells us why he wrote the book? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Maybe we might all have these memorized by the time we get done with John. It says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Works. John gives us just a select few of the things Jesus did. But the point was always to, to bring faith in the ones who heard, that they would not just hear with their ears, but they in fact would believe. So these works that he has given to do. They're that testimony. That's their, in a sense, they stand up, they go to the, to, the, to the witness stand and say, yes, what you're thinking about Jesus being the Messiah, what you're thinking about him being the Son of God, what you're thinking about him saying that he is equal with God, that, that is all true. Who could do these things but the Creator God, the life giver God, the light who is God, these are the works of the Father, as Jesus said back in verses 17 and 19. Remember, he told them my, in verse 17, my Father is working until now, until now, and I myself am working. In other words, everything I'm doing, it's the Father and I working together. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. And let us say it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. His works are also the works of the Father. They work completely together. And who else can do whatever the Father does except someone who is, in fact, God? Jesus just brings these truths back again and again. And John presents them for us, right? What a, what a, a great thing that, that he has given us this and, and preserved it for us so that we can see again and again this is who Jesus is. Then Jesus calls his third witness, verses 37 and 38. He comes back to the main witness, the Father. 
and the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Now here, you have not heard his voice. Could be talking about one of those occasions where the voice from heaven came and and spoke about who Jesus is. Uh, I think probably the most likely it was at his baptism. If you go to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 uh, through 17, where it says, then, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering him said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, the actual voice of God audibly spoke from heaven and said, He is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God himself witnessed to Jesus. And even those words were an echo of Isaiah 42 and verse 1. So it wasn't a brand new idea when Jesus was baptized, but in fact something that had been coming for centuries. Here it says, Behold my servant, one of, one of Isaiah's terms for the coming Messiah, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. There's the same idea. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who is the one in whom God's soul delights, in whom God is well pleased? Oh, he's the servant who is to come, who Isaiah tells us is the suffering servant, who is Jesus. So this witness, the Father, speaks clearly about who Jesus is. But Jesus tells these, these men back in, in John chapter 5 that they have never heard the voice of God. Now, does that mean that none of them were there when Jesus was baptized? That could be. But they were, they were checking John out at that time. There may have been some of them there. That's really not his point, is whether they actually heard audibly a voice from God. But as Jesus has used this word heard throughout this whole section, it's, it's really for a lot more than that. It's actually, are you hearing and believing the words that you hear? Remember back in chapter 5, verse 24, or he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. It's not just hearing by itself, but hears and believes the Father. He's really saying, you haven't even heard the Father. You never let it register, right? And in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And if you remember when we covered that, that section, Jesus says, 
time is coming and now is now. I'm speaking to you. You hear and believe what I'm saying. You can have new life. You can move out of death into life. And he's telling these leaders, you have not heard the voice of God. Not that it hasn't been available, because Jesus has been speaking to them. But you haven't heard him and believed and trusted yourself to him. He also says you haven't seen his form. Well, John, we, we were told back in John chapter 4, you know, with the woman at the well, God is spirit. So, of course, they haven't seen God's form or his shape. But what is, what is that getting at? It's not that we have to see a physical form of God. God did reveal himself to people in, in a number of different ways, didn't he? Uh, sometimes as light, sometimes as fire or a pillar of cloud over the, the tabernacle, right? But ultimately, the form you could see was Jesus, right? John already told us that back in chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> it says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. To see Jesus, as he'll later say, you've been with me so long and you say you haven't seen the Father? Jesus was the one, not, and it's not so much the people who saw Jesus' physical body, but people who saw him as the human representation of what God is like. God in human flesh. And so he tells these, these leaders that it's not, the problem isn't their eyes or their physical ears, but it's their hearts and what they're willing to accept. Are they willing even to accept all this testimony that God has given? But as he, as he goes on there, he says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Here he's speaking to the, the great teachers of Israel, the people everybody looked up to. Tell us what God has to say. Tell us what God's words mean. Tell us how God wants us to live. And he says, you know, the words of God don't abide, don't dwell in you. Isn't that a, a frightening thing? That even the words of God can be like dead things in the heart of someone who won't believe them. That's probably why Paul even commands believers in Colossians to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, right? We have to consciously say, yes, God's words, I'm not only going to know them, but I'm going to believe them, and I'm going to act on them in my life. That's what where the life is. It's not just having the words, but in fact, letting them actively change me, actively direct my thinking, actively give me new ways of living. When we say no to that, and God's words just become more religious-sounding stuff. That's when it's very frightening. And Jesus is giving a strong warning here to these men. And then finally, witness number four is called the Scriptures. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling 
come to me so that you may have life. Um, your translation may, may have this as a command, search the scriptures. It's more likely a statement because that's what these people did. That was their, their life. They studied the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament in detail, often memorizing huge sections of it. They could debate about it and the, and the minutia of it all for hours on end without even hardly trying. They valued the knowledge of it very highly, but in a twisted way. One of the great rabbis, Hillel, uh, talked about this in, in one of his sayings. He said, Whoso hath gained a good name has gained it for himself. Whoso hath gained the words of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. You see, they thought they had gained favor with God. They thought they had gained entrance into heaven just because they had learned mentally things out of the Bible. Jesus wants them to know that there's more to it. The evidence for life is there because it points to him. He says, yes, the scriptures speak about me. Jesus says, I'm the point of all of that. It's all leading to me. And the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah is overwhelming when you start to dig into the Old Testament. I mean, if all you had was Isaiah chapter 53, one of those passages about the suffering servant, and you saw the life of what, and what Jesus did, you'd say, yeah, he's the one. If you had Isaiah chapter 9, the one we, we, we look at so often at Christmas time, that tells us about his names and who he is, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That would be enough. But they had chapter upon chapter, book after book. Jesus is speaking about the scriptures that they already have. The New Testament then will be written, and we have so much more, right? Just in the book of John, we're overwhelmed with who he is. They had information, but it was use, useless without believing God, without believing in the one that God sent, Jesus himself. And verse 40 brings it all together and again focuses on Jesus' purpose for all, this whole time of talking to them when he says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So again, he's not just trying to win an argument. He's not just trying to justify himself before the people that people think in Israel are important. He's concerned about the souls and the eternity of these men that he loves very Dearly. These men who want to kill him, he came from the glories of heaven to become a baby, to live a life among sinners, to never, ever sin, and to give his life so that he could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's so sad to see them continually reject the one who came to save them. The opportunity is right there in front of them. He says, you won't come so that you can have life. I've got life for you. Just believe in me. So all that Jesus teaches here really should overwhelm all resistance 
to his message that he, the Son of God, he is the Son of God, and he is therefore equal with God. In reality, these words should have brought these men to their knees before him in worship, right? Saying, oh, go, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, as Peter said, right? But they are, as Jesus said, unwilling to come to him. It's an act of their will to say no to Jesus. Their hearts are hardened against this truth about him. And if that can happen to people who so thoroughly knew God's word, how much danger is there for us? Just to wrap up, I'd say don't harden your hearts. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior right now, fall on your face before him, confess your sin, and receive his free gift of eternal life and a new life and a life where he is in complete control. But also we can do that as believers too, can't we? We become believing ones, and yet we can become hardened toward God and how we, we look at his word, how we interact with Jesus. And, and rather than just out and out believing him, when we're afraid, we resort to other saviors, right? Other things to help us instead of him. Because we need to go to him first, right? And he, he uses lots of different means to help us, but we need to go right to him. When we're angry, we need to go to him and, and Say, Lord, is my anger righteous? I need to trust you. Fill in the areas where your places of temptation are. Does his word, does his life dwell within you? Or do you just kind of bring him alongside? It's a dangerous thing to do, especially when we have such riches in Christ. All that is ours. Let's keep on pressing into him. Let's, as Jesus says, Come to him is the way he describes it. There's a sense of we have to keep on pressing, keep on coming to him, even as believers, don't we? Not that, I, not that, that our, our salvation is dependent. That's secure when we come to Christ and believe in him. But it's a relationship, right? And if we want to experience the fullness of the life he has for us, it's a pressing into him, pressing into his word. It's a pressing in to the path that he has for us and the truth that he has for us. So let's encourage each other. Let's bring each other along to Jesus as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving Jesus' very words for us. Thank you for helping us to see what a heart he has, even for those who are murderously angry with him because he wants to get in the way of, of the things that they want or they think they want, things that are mean death for them. But thank you that you persevere press into our hearts so that we would pursue the things that are the, that are the things of life. Would help us to see those, uh, to repent where we are uh, choosing our own way, and to, to change us from the inside out, day by day, more and more each day, for your glory. We ask this for the glory of your Son, for you. In Jesus' name.